0: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SubChina is simply the best way to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China, especially if you subscribe to our daily email newsletter, SubChina Access. And visit SupChina.com to check out our wide range of reported pieces, our op-eds, videos, and of course, our podcasts. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Gould, coming to you today from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Joining me from Nashville, Tennessee, is Jeremy Goldcorn, who starts each day by looking at himself in the mirror and saying, <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay. Uh, I have nothing to say. (laughs) Okay. Anyway. Um
0: it it may seem to you and me, Jeremy, like we disagree on many, many things. Well we do. Uh, We do, yes. I, I mean so like I said, like it seems to you and me that we disagree. And and yet to my surprise, despite Um, My sometimes seeing you as the archetypal hostile foreign force, Um, (laughs) you you still get attacked for being some kind of a panda hugger online fairly frequently. And doubtless to your surprise, despite your seeing me as someone who's just often... Who's a panda hugger. Yeah, sympathetic (laughs) to undeserving Chinese leadership. uh, There are are people out there who still pillory me as some kind of enemy of the PRC uh, as a hostile foreign force. It's
1: bizarre. I know. It's amazing uh and i mean sometimes uh i get attacked for being both on the same day um
0: so <laughs> <laughs> well well we are certainly not alone in this and neither of us has really had it that bad all things considered uh it, i do feel like there's you know st- still room in the conversation about China uh, for people who can condemn the atrocities in Xinjiang without clamoring for regime change. Uh, But I do worry that that space is shrinking. Uh, Anyway, our guest today, though, is somebody who's gotten it pretty bad from both sides, uh, more viciously from the really ardent Chinese nationalists, but also from people on the other side. Uh, Yang Fan is a staff writer for The New Yorker and has been a guest on the program twice previously as well as appearing on our sister show, New Voices. Uh, In a recent issue of the magazine, she published a heartbreaking Courageously candid, beautifully written piece uh, called How My Mother and I Became Chinese Propaganda. Uh, we have see other personal history and public controversy all against the agonizing backdrop of her desperate efforts to save the life of her mother, uh, who for six years has been bedridden, paralyzed, and on a ventilator, uh, or recently due to. The neurodegenerative disease ALS uh, and was suddenly and very seriously endangered by the COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, Yang, it is such a powerful piece, and congratulations. Uh, welcome back to Seneca.
2: It is wonderful to be back. Um, as you uh, guys both know, it it is a pleasure to uh, chat with you um, offline, and it is um, an honor to be able to talk to you in a public forum, so uh, very happy to be here.
1: All right. Well, thank you, Yang. It's hard for me to imagine myself writing anything like what you've written, something so candid uh, about such deeply personal things about your family. And you may not be typical, but uh, I tend to think that Chinese people usually are even more shy about things in their families and in their personal experiences than Westerners tend to be. Uh, particularly Americans, of course, who'll meet you on a plane for two minutes and then tell you about their divorce and, you know, their (laughs) colorectal cancer. Um, But anyway, uh, uh, can you talk about your decision uh, to write this and publish it?
2: Sure. I'm grateful that you liked the piece. I know that you were one of the uh, wonderfully compassionate voices who reached out to me when I was going through these attacks back in April. But I have to admit that even now, even after the piece has come out and my life is very open out there for the world to examine, I feel no small amount of trepidation about what I have done and the ambivalence, I think, that um, lingers in me about the Moral choice that I've made is something I will, I am wrestling with and will continue to wrestle with. I think about writing itself sometimes as, as an inevitable act of betrayal and writing about my mother, such an intensely private person for so much of her life is perhaps my greatest betrayal of her. Mm. But I also want to believe that it is the only tribute worthy of her. And that contradiction is what I will, I think, be mired in for um, for for the rest of my life.
0: Was there an intention to kind of achieve catharsis with this? Did, is that part of what you were thinking? Is that part of what drove you? Um, I mean, I, I can only imagine that it would have been kind of cathartic.
2: I wanted to believe that writing about it would be cathartic. And in some sense, it has been one of the most difficult parts of writing the piece was going through those Twitter threads for the fact checker um, to find for them those screenshots of what had been said about me. As you know, the the New Yorker is um, famously fastidious in its fact checking, so that required me to you know read through all the um,
0: the vitriol, death, yeah. your
2: mother, yeah, yes, and. Uh, one of the reasons I procrastinated so long in writing the piece was doing that, going through those threads um, for the first time in the writing process was really emotionally difficult for me. Mm. Intellectually, I knew that the the Yang fan my detractors were writing at was not me. But when you're reading such graphic descriptions of how others want to tear into your mother's corpse and how they want to feast on your ashes. But the ones about, especially about my mother, about, you know, the kind of mutilation that they wanted to do to her body, it doesn't matter that these are faceless strangers and that I I can see what drives (laughs) their impulse to undercut me and to hurt me. The part of the mind that um, can see reason sometimes exists in a different room from the very fragile human heart that is reflexively and in spite of itself reacting to these profoundly wounding uh, images.
0: Yeah. So I want to get at why they were attacking you in the first place, because it's something that struck me about the piece is that you never actually... Talk about that. You never really talk about what it was that set off all this criticism about that other Yang Fan. All that, that vitriol, those ugly, you know, assaults on you and your mother. Uh, if I'm remembering correctly, this all started back when you were doing coverage about Hong Kong. Uh, and, and it struck me then as really odd because I think what you actually said and, uh, you know what you were reporting, and the experiences that you were talking about on Twitter actually supported certain ideas that mainlanders who were critical of the protests uh, had been trying to push all along.
2: One of the great ironies—I'm so glad that you were pointing this out—and that is actually an aspect of everything that has followed that has been so uh, confusing. Um, and
0: let's be explicit about what it is that I'm talking about here. You brought out this undercurrent of of anti-mainlander bigotry which is there in the protests at least some people say that it's very much there in the protests you experienced it personally you talked about it but there there was a phrase that you used that set off this this wave of attacks against you so yeah talk about that if you could
2: Exactly the English sentence that I put posted on Twitter was my chinese face has become a liability and that was in direct response to an experience of going to a protest as a journalist with native Hong Kong retired teacher. Both of us obviously are ethnically Chinese and appear as such to the protesters and those observing the protests. And I was speaking in Mandarin to this retired teacher, because that was, you know, the language that she was most comfortable um, conversing in. I I don't speak any Cantonese, her native language. And overhearing that I was speaking Mandarin, um, and coupled with the fact that I am Chinese and have um, uh, a Chinese appearance, I was, I became uh, a person of suspicion, and was publicly questioned. And, and it kind of grew into um, this attack on whether I was an interloper and whether I was justified in um, attending the protest. And I was so shaken by that experience that, as so many of us do, I uh, took to Twitter and I wrote a thread documenting the experience with um, those videos, exploring my Confusion about and sadness uh, over the fact that my Chinese face, coupled with speaking Mandarin, was such uh, was such um, a liability. Yeah, was such a, was a, such a was such a liability, and that's what that sentence was referring to. And of course, as you just mentioned, that my my personal experience connected to what I had been hearing from some Hong Kongers um, and some Hong Kong. Visitors that being a mainlander in Hong Kong um, sometimes can subject you to um, second class citizen treatment, so that's what I was exploring. It is not a viewpoint that everyone might know about, but I thought that it was definitely a subject that deserved to be explored and might also explain some of the grievances that mainlanders feel in Hong Kong and some of their hostility. Toward Hong Kong natives, even though as I explored in my longer piece for The New Yorker, which I wrote in December of last year, 2019, I also am sympathetic to the intentions of the protesters and what, what they're trying to achieve. But I, I was really trying, when I was in Hong Kong, I was trying to capture kind of these individual perspectives and make sure that grievances were not left out and that no individual political um, and personal social perspective was ignored. And that Twitter thread, as you and Jeremy know, was torn terrifically out of context and translated as my Chinese face is a burden, which then was spread widely on Chinese internet and really inflamed public indignity about my deep shame about being Chinese. And the rest is history, as you know.
1: Um, and am I right that the people who from the other side who criticized you were also unhappy about that because they felt that you weren't saying 100% positive things about the Hong Kong protesters?
2: Oh, yes. Jeremy, that's a great point. When I was in Hong Kong, I posted many images and short videos about the protests, perhaps too many in retrospect, but they received a lot of comments and a good number of them felt that I was not adequately sympathetic to the protesters and that I was not declaring public support on varnished kind of unequivocal support for the cause and i and these were not just coming from people with one follower these were coming sometimes from scholars hong kong scholars and uh, intellectuals who felt that um i was being too soft on the PRC and that perhaps my mainlander background as the two of you know I was born in China and um, so so you're a communist <laughs> is what you're <they're> saying <laughs> that yeah, <my> yeah. <laughs> uh, Jayong
0: I mean y- you had written about the protests uh, very early into them and you wrote a really I thought extremely sensitive and smart essay uh, in the New Yorker about why it was that your mainlander friends and acquaintances weren't all Uh, getting on board. We're not not all uh, supportive and not entirely sympathetic to the motives of the protests. And uh, I thought that was, it was excellent. Uh, Did you get feedback on that? Because I I, I thought that you were making it pretty clear that this isn't what you think. This is you sort of channeling uh, the thinking of a lot of the mainlanders that you knew in the States and in China.
2: Yeah. I mean, thank you, Kaiser. You were one of the Early generous uh, supporters of that piece, uh, and, and you know you were um, really complimentary about it.
0: Well, it just it just reflected everything that I had been hearing as well. I mean, I thought it was really accurate. I think. Thank you.
2: I mean, and right. I I was really writing it from both my uh, my own experience and the viewpoint of my family members, and also of myself as a child. You know, my perception of Hong Kong as right. this fantastically glamorous city um, in the clouds almost. Um, Hong Kong might as well have been in the clouds um, uh, for, for how um, you know prohibitive it was for mainlanders to um, gain entry.
0: But how, how is that one received though, especially among these same people who are Pretty pro protester.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I I heard some nice things about it, but I I'm not sure that folks who aren't maybe as engaged and um, educated about you know Chinese uh, history and as interested maybe in um, Hong Kong and China, if it registered, I don't even think it made you know the most red list. I'm not sure that it was seen as you know a, a landmark piece by by any means, but I was writing really from kind of what I knew of uh, Hong Kong and from you know my truest feelings about and I wanted to make sure that perspective was represented on the page and in, in American media
0: so I guess the knock on you from some people I've heard is that you shy away from politics that you focus on. On culture stories, uh, you've done great pieces on beautification apps, on mistress dispellers, uh, both of which we've <laughs> talked about with you on, on the program before. Uh, that sort of thing. I mean, these are great stories. I mean, we all love them. But uh, do you think there's anything to that criticism? I mean, do you wanna, well, How would you respond to people who say uh Jiang Fan uh, is is chicken about covering hard politics?
2: I'm really glad you asked that question. Um, listen, I uh, never uh, got a. PhD in political science. I do not have a degree in Chinese history. And my understanding of China has largely been through my experience past and present engaging with its various cultural spaces. I've never been to Zhongnanhai. I don't expect ever to be invited to Zhongnanhai. And in terms of Political commentary. I do write, you know, hot takes once in a while. But am I the person most qualified to give us, you know, the 20 year out prediction of what will happen in China? I'm not sure. And in terms of political opinion, I've never been a person who felt completely confident making these ideological pronouncements about what China should be, what especially the precise shape that the regime, you know, should become. So I want to deliver insights in spaces that I have confidence in being able to report on. So I think that's why I've been attracted to the stories that I have been. And politics, um, there are so many political scientists and political reporters, I think, better positioned and more qualified to weigh in on those subjects. As you both know, um, culture in China is political. I mean, wh- whether it's the Mistress Dispellers or these beautification apps, in my exploration of them as what they represent about China, the conversation is necessarily one that engages in the political nature of Chinese uh, society.
1: Yeah,
0: for sure. So
2: that's never left out of the conversation. Um, And of course um other detractors have often lamented the fact that I make everything political right like
0: <laughs> you can't win when I'm
2: talking about you know the mistress dispellers, um I'm accused of why do you have to make it um about sexism why do you have to talk about you know the the history of gender in China and if it, when it comes to beautification apps also you know why are you talking about you know young people weighing in on politics what does that have to do with right. it so <laughs> so uh, you, you get it from both sides <laughs>
0: <laughs> that should be the name of this podcast. You get it from both sides. Okay. <laughs>
1: Jayang, uh let's look at some details in the piece itself. Uh, when your mother says, as uh, it seems she does quite frequently, she warns you, don't against China uh, uh, about your writing. Is she primarily worried about your safety? Or is it the loyal party member, uh, the vestiges perhaps of the loyal party member within her that is talking?
2: I think it's both. And I think those two impulses are connected. My mother was a party member before she left China in 1992 and not one who was in name only. She is a third generation Communist Party member. She has taken great pride her entire life up until the present in her party men- membership and in the birth and persistence of Communist China. Um, she is a great proponent of the regime, even if she has not Reckoned with its history and perhaps um, remains in denial about much of its history and the ramifications of many of the policies that has harmed, you know, other parts of my, my family. But my mother says, do not against China for me. It is out of both a personal devotion to the present shape of China her deep patriotism, her protectiveness about this motherland that she has such pride in, and that is such an inextricable part of her identity, of her sense of self. And also the very practical concern for my safety. If I were to go to Hong Kong or the mainland, she is very aware of the power of the party and of its distaste for its distractors. And, uh, she does not want to lose her only daughter and she does not want harm to come to her only daughter. And I think those are connected in, um, her great reverence for hierarchy. I mean, that's something I talk about in the piece. It's that she feels that this is the existing system. And, um, who is she and who am I to question it? And who am I to be a troublemaker? Her favorite word. <laughs> <laughs>
0: jeremy likes to do a yeah uh, yes <laughs> the sure jeremy sure goldhorn
1: um i follow on to that. Uh, I think we all have people in our lives who are staunch defenders uh, of China and who are convinced that the Western media is irretrievably biased against this um. So, as you're, even as you're under constant attack by nationalists and little pinks and trolls on the internet, I still detect some empathy uh, on your part Jayang, uh, for why it is that they react the way that they do. Can you talk about that and, and maybe I can ask Kaiser to um, follow up um, because... Uh, oh, because I, I don't have any people
0: in my life who are like that now <laughs>
2: <laughs> Yeah, I mean um, I did not intend to write such a intensely personal um memoir a few months ago when the tax um, uh began on Twitter I thought about um, a piece of thought about writing a much shorter piece on the phenomenon of um, trolls on Twitter and um, why this uh this public space, this public cyberspace, was being colonized um, in this way, and
0: I remember we we talked about that back in April. Remember exactly? We, we I think talked. I
2: remember. I remember calling you.
0: I was I was surprised when I when I saw when I saw this this piece come out. I thought it was that, and they just sat on it for a long time. And I was like, oh my god, this is like. <laughs>
2: I know. And just I mean I'm sure I'm, I'm sure your listeners are too smart um not to know this already but writers do not write their headlines. Um so the the I think the piece um uh, the title of the piece is you know how my mother and I um became yeah. you know Chinese propaganda. I'm not sure if um that's the title I would have chosen for the piece. I mean I'm not um obviously I'm not saying that's not part of the piece, but I, you know, that that
0: next time, just send a text message to somebody that says, "Don't against China."
2: <laughs> that should take care
0: of it. I, I, I'm I'm gonna do that to Jeremy all the time now. Jeremy, today's newsletter is fine, but don't against China.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Um. But but going back to you know Jeremy's question, when I thought about the phenomenon of trolls, it was very important to me that even if they were wishing for my death and hoping that I would, you know, choke on the ashes of my mother, that I could not dehumanize them the way that they sometimes do their uh, subjects. And that made me think of what fueled this fury that they were unleashing. And it made me think about the intensity of the love, which is the other side of um, hate and contempt. And it made me think of my mother, the person that I love the most in my life, and her absolutely unequivocal, undiluted love for this country, for which her father um, almost gave his life. And it made me think that, were my mother in China today, had she led a parallel life, and had she never gone to the U.S., And the story of this traitorous, ethnically Chinese reporter who is defaming the motherland for a living, what her reaction would be um, living in China and maybe... I mean, my mother is too private, I think, and maybe too um, technologically um, incompetent to be uh, signing up for Twitter and uh, telling me off. But I I think that she would share in the feelings of many of my trolls. And that was very, very informative to me. And as I write in the piece, I think what separates those wishing my mother to die from my mother. I mean, that, I think that the, there's much more similarity than, than, than difference. And I think behind the vitriol is this fierce attachment to communist China as a part of individual identity of so many Chinese. And although I might think of their death wishes as an attack, to them, it is a defense born out of deep love and fealty to the this place that has birthed them and to their um conception of self.
0: Jiang why do you use the, the the phrase communist China? I'm I'm curious about that. Why why do you say communist China instead of China?
2: Because right. Um because I think Probably because of my mother and my uh, grandfather have always said there would be no China without Chinese communists. So for them, communist China is. Um, but there's
0: no word in Chinese for communist China. You know, nobody says "gongchan No,
2: but "gongchan." But but I think the idea of um, you know, 共, 這是共產黨的, I mean, I think, you know, Zhonggong, I mean, the the, 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 to them, is it's in, you know, it's, you know, Zhonggong is, you know, is, um, the
0: Chinese Communist Party. Chinese
2: Communist Party, party, right. But, um, I think to, to them, it's almost indistinguishable. And I think that's really important to point out, maybe, um, to some of our Western, um, listeners that, uh, I think, uh, for, um, for, for, for many of my family members, um, China, you know, China was built by the modern China, you know, 解放后. I mean, think about the contest of liberation, right? Before, there was no real China. Um, before, before 49, in my mother's mind, it was madness. And, you know, the communists came, they conquered, they liberated, and China is, um, the great gift of the communists to, um, the people of China. So when I, you know, so when I say, um, communist China, it's my mother's, um, and you know, when I was growing up, um, maybe I'm wandering a little bit here. I grew up in an army compound, um, and, uh, everywhere, the, the non-communists, the people who are, you know, the, the Chongqing natives, they were, 地方人, they were the locals, right? And there was this sense of superiority that, you know, um, the only f- other fellow party members, those were, those were real. Those were our mm. people. And 地方人, um were kind of, you know, they were, they were 老百姓, you know, they were, they, they were the masses. And, uh, um uh, you know, I was eight when I left, but it, it, it was only after I left that I queried my sense mm. of superiority, you know, like... You know, party. The party was our family, and the non-party members were um, those were, were were outsiders. So I'm sorry. So that's a long way. Uh, that's a long way of answering a question to communist China. I mean, you know, I I, I deeply I felt that there um, when I was eight, um, China.
0: Okay, I mean, so yeah. you use it in a very different sense than <laughs> Rest, uh, most yes. people who now use that yes. word. Uh, use it as a sort of a, a deliberate evocation of of the Cold War.
2: Uh, <laughs> you know, to
0: distinguish it from, you know, free China or whatever.
2: Right, right, right.
0: Anyway, I, I thought it was sort of curious coming out of your mouth. Uh, right. Anyway, I mean, Jeremy, you were asking earlier about, you know, um, these people in our lives and how we can have that empathy. I mean, look, it's it's easy to see. Uh, A lot of mainlanders today is extremely thin skinned and hypersensitive and just unwilling to take any kind of criticism at just uh, overreacting to the slightest perceived insults. And and I I totally get why it looks that way. I I would just urge people to think about how, for a whole bunch of reasons, uh, including, I mean, I don't don't mean to downplay uh, the the constant fanning of this through patriotic education but there is this this uh, remembered whether organically or, or otherwise remembered sense of of humiliation and it's there this isn't particular to the chinese communists we have to remember you know john kai sek wrote you know Avenge humiliation in in his diary every day uh, this this is something that that a lot of, of chinese people up until the current generation have have sort of personally felt.
2: Uh, yes, uh, I mean
0: it has a certain recency, and and this time period has been particularly so. I mean, I feel like they feel uh, subjected to whether we see it or not uh, to a lot of of indignities. Uh, usually at the hands of America, and America is very powerful media, and that they would take it out on somebody like Jia uh, is is horrible, but not surprising because there's a special vitriol that Chinese nationalists reserve for people who they think of as race traders. As Hanjian, well put. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So t- t- tell me about your experience as being thought of as a race trader. I mean, that's a horrible thing to be. I mean, I. I I'll, I'll get in fistfights for people who call me a banana or things like that. But I mean, God, to be called a Hanjian.
2: Right. I think um, for uh, I I noticed that for uh, some of my um, detractors, what uh, they found particularly despicable about me was that I spoke both Chinese and English and that I spoke Chinese fluently. Some of them, you know, th- th- these were thousands um, of, of comments and some of, were left in English and some were left in Chinese and they're. Became a conversation among the, the trolls themselves, which I did not um, engage in. One asked, you know, is she understanding my insults? Um, does she know what I'm saying? Do I need to use some trans- translation app? So she gets um, exactly what I want to do to her mother. And someone else responded, oh no, she's fluent in Chinese. She reads and writes and um, she absolutely knows what you're uh, writing. And I thought that was actually um, a bit amusing. And that only, I think, in their minds, compounded the intensity of my betrayal. That if I were a second or third generation Chinese American, my actions could almost be not exactly forgiven, but their evil could be explained away a little bit by ignorance. But the fact that I was born into absolute awareness of my Chineseness, and what they perceive as my later rejection of it, I think, is what makes me the most despicable. And Hanjian is a particular a term that I was familiar with as a child, you know, you couldn't you know there, there there were few things um worse than being a hanjie and race trader it's so funny just even when you say it to me that doesn't even have the same like i don't i, I don't react quite viscerally as as viscerally to um race trader um right. it loses some of its you know edge in english but hanjie every single time like someone even says that term a, a little bit of me shivers inside you know um because i have a, re, a emotional reaction to it and also arguidz as I'm sure, um, you've yeah. heard, um, uh, and, um, um, 假洋人. <laughs> 假洋人, fake, um, a fake American, um, a fake Westerner. And this idea that, um, you know, some of the language that they use is really, um, um not fit for, um, public consumption, but that I am allowing myself to be raped. By Americans, that I'm selling myself, I'm prostituting myself to Americans for fame and fortune, um, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, that's yes.
0: what you do when you really want fortune. You
2: become a reporter, right? Uh, right, right. Uh, um <laughs> right, but I think that explains the fairy nature of the rage, and that's why I'm so much worse than just an American I mean than just um someone who um then you know someone like Jeremy at least um there's a reason w- for what he does. But I think yeah. for many um Chinese nationals, what I have done is beyond reason, what they perceive as my rejection of my Chineseness.
1: There are a lot of people I know who roll their eyes whenever someone brings up the idea of mianzi or face. And in fact, I myself think it's often used in a similar way to guanxi uh, to sort of orientalize things that are going on in Chinese society and to make Chinese people seem very different. And I think some of the time that's that's. That's very true. I mean, some, sometimes losing face feels exactly the same to a Westerner as it does to a Chinese person. It's, it's a combination of embarrassment and shame and uh, some other emotions. But there are plenty of Chinese right. people who are quite bicultural who would insist that it's, the concept of mianz is actually really different from uh, pride, shame, honor, dignity, uh, what have you. Um, You deploy Mianzi and make it actually quite a central part of your story about your mother and the humble profession she had to take up after coming to the States and your father leaving, about your mother's and other relatives' reactions to the criticism of you on on social media. Could you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I think losing face in English, even though it is roughly correspondent to losing Mianzi, is something that in The West, it has a different gravity than the Chinese mianzi. And I really remember mianzi as roughly kind of equivalent to my earliest conception of self. Like, who are you without your mianzi? So, and I think that has to do with this different idea of identity in the West and in China. In the US, where I've spent now, most of my life since the age of eight, identity is something that intrinsically belongs to you. That is not to say that um, other people cannot affect your self-confidence um, and hurt your ego, but that you have ownership roughly over your identity and you take possession of it and you have control over, um, uh, you know, your sense of Self, very mean, but which is not to at all detract from the complexity of the self and how you know it is constantly in flex with um, the greater society. But in China, your identity is something almost bestowed upon you by other people's perception of you. That is quite a generalization, and I'm not sure every a Chinese person would conform to this. But at least for my mother and for many of her generation, and I think for many today, it is the external perception that comprises your identity. And that's why losing manzi it's not just about losing face, like you're losing kind of, you know, this thing that you're wearing on your face and that, you know, you can just sort of take it off um, and it's, you know, it's inconvenient. But that when you lose manzi, you lose yourself. And for my mother, you know, I, I remember how devastating it was for her when hmm. she thought that others spoke um, ill of us in a way that I think an American psychologist, I, I imagine being a therapist here and being told, well, who cares what other people think? You know, it's what you think of yourself that matters. You know, your self-esteem comes with from within. But imagine, you know, in China, in 80s, early 90s China, there was no language to bring about that other reality. So the national psyche was my mother's personal psychology, I think, that your means was what you are. And I've been really, I'm so glad you bring it up, Jeremy, because. <laughs> um, I've been so gratified by many of the responses I've received to the piece. But so many Chinese Americans and Chinese have said, I particularly um, felt really seen in your description of mianzi. And I've spent so much of my life trying to explain to my American friends this difference between face and mianzi, and they don't get it. And uh, um, in your piece, I felt like it was explored in a way that, you know, really accords with my understanding of it and why actually I've struggled with my own parents um, so much for so much of my life. And that was incredibly rewarding for me as a writer to read as a response to the piece.
1: Speaking of responses, uh, aside from those people, uh, how, how was the piece received both here and in China? And have you talked to your mother about it? And what about relatives back in China?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, as far as I know, it has not been translated, which is why maybe the response has been Quite muted in Chinese social media. I haven't been following um, it very closely, partly because I think I was a little bit traumatized by um, the by by uh, searching for my Chinese name in uh, Chinese social media uh, in the last few months. I stopped doing it altogether because, uh, much as I was aware that the Fan in Chinese media was not me, I had panic attacks when I when I saw some of the things I've written. So I've I've tried to to steer away um, from searching for my Myself too much. So I'm not sure. I mean, but on Twitter and on Facebook and uh, Instagram, there's still some trollish responses. I mean, there's still, you know, I've, I've still gotten comments saying that I am an ass-looking dog who um, did not learn her lesson from April, and that the expected contrition that had been anticipated has not been um, borne out by this piece, and that I seem to have only doubled down on my betrayal. The vast majority of Chinese Americans have written to me to say that they see aspects of themselves and their family in this story, and I cannot emphasize um, how um, just incredibly touched I was, because, especially for for man's, for privacy, right? Like this is something you know. What I've done is really taboo here, and um, so many of them. I mean, and I thought about you know some of the responses I received were these essays of um, you know f- like intergenerational personal history of you know grandparents, parents, the menial lab- the m- labor that their parents had to do, the fact that, you know their parents never talk about it, and you know that they've lived with this all their life. I was so part of me, you know, wanted to almost screenshot it because I want to say, oh my god, like. I- I know that I seem like a complete weirdo and just this, um, this alien in writing this history. What I'm recounting here is the kind, is the suffering of, um, immigrants that's maybe not as uncommon as we think. But the other part of me knew that, of course, I couldn't screenshot it and share with the world that, you know, so, for so many of these people who felt seen in my story, they are still every bit as private about their own personal, um, history and that really, uh, whatever solidarity that we feel still is in the shadows, you know and um right. and and there's something very poignant and heartbreaking to me about that
0: it's got to go a long way toward making you feel a little bit better about all the trolls but um there was one bit in your in your piece that uh it really hit me. Your mom actually called you a traitor after finding your diary and reading what you had written about her about your relationship what What was it that that was so offensive uh, about what you had written? Right. That theme of betrayal keeps coming up in this in this conversation. Eh.
2: Right, right. I think as I write in the piece, um, I, I was, you know, educated um, the first two years um, in, in grade school in China. And I have to understand that stories in China, at least, you know, this is early 90s China, stories on the radio, on TV, in books, in uh, my uh, first grade primers. It is cast in terms of heroes and villains, and that informs my mother's fundamental understanding of the world. When she watches a movie, five minutes, minutes into it, she will say, who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? Literally in those terms, right? So, and that is not just, um, mm-hmm. you know, about movies. That is about her fundamental understanding of the world. Like, there are, it's very black and white. It's very absolutist. There are good people and there are bad people, and we need to make that.
0: Well, that's how I am about Twitter. <laughs>
2: A list? You have a secret list, um, uh, 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 Kaiser. Um, so that—that that is a fundamental part of you know her perception of the world. So imagine her reading her daughter's diary, which is another story in which she, you know, as I'm documenting some of the ways that I feel hurt and bruised by her. Uh, she reads that as me casting her as a villain, right? That mm. she is the bad guy in my story. And imagine her sense of betrayal. I mean, I get it, right? When you understand the world only as good guys and bad guys, black and white, how is she supposed to comprehend kind of the complexity? Sure.
0: I mean, especially, I mean, you were a child and given the level of sacrifice she had made mm-hmm. for you at that point, I understand it perfectly well. Yeah. Uh, when I read my kids' diaries, I, no, I'm just joking. I would never do it. Just because I'm afraid to.
2: Right, yeah. I, you know,
0: I, I'm afraid to read, you know, things that, that are written about me that are horrible and somehow Jeremy... Has grown this skin of our rhinoceros. I, I, it's something I've always <laughs> admired about you, Jeremy. And maybe, I mean, he could give us some pointers because I think Jayong and I both take it a little more personally than, than you do. You're, you'll just wade into combat pretty ferociously when you do decide to fight. And then
1: you can just, like, just, it just rolls off mm-hmm.
2: your back. Yeah. No, well,. Wow.
1: Well, uh, you know, I I think, uh, firstly, I didn't grow up in America where part of the culture, popularity is almost the most important thing. If you think of the classic American high school movie (laughs) or or, or university movie, being popular is the most important goal. And I I, I grew up in a rather different culture, so that helps. Um, It also helps that I'm a privileged white male, so... Uh, I get attacked a lot less and I, I, uh, I grew up with a, a sense of confidence that I'm always right that uh, a lot of other people don't have. You know, I think that's probably it, actually.
0: <laughs> really, just privilege and, 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 um, but, foreignness. So. I mean,
2: I also, like you, um, Kaiser, I also have great admiration for, um, for not only for, uh, Jeremy's, um, the leathery nature of his skin, but also for, <laughs> um, for his, uh, conviction and, um, passion and compassion and, uh, I, and, and and what I see in that is just such a firm sense of self, um, which I don't possess. I think doubt, self-doubt is as much my country as um, uncertainty, which I write um, in the piece. And that is something... That I still live with. And that is, I think, just fundamentally kind of the lens through which I perceive the world, right? You know, on Twitter, I, I'm accused many times, you know, <laughs> among the many things um, that I, that I am a traitor to China, a mole in um, a US uh, publication, um, someone who is perhaps trying to have it both ways. And I think most curiously, some say that I, I seem to think of myself as superior to everyone else. I don't know if that you know that, that that's your guys's perception of kind of what oh what definitely of <laughs> my of my persona on um Twitter, which to be honest is just so much vapid um Chinese food commentary. I mean um and bubble yeah, tea yeah, bubble yeah. tea critiques right um and just for
0: the record, Jia had to to pause this this podcast to go get her bubble tea. <laughs> oh no, so now, that that part of it is oh, true. I, I'm, I'm actually the
2: bubble tea Asian that everybody um that 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 everybody um accuses me of being, but um but. I, I find, you know, that the sense that um, I must have, you know, just such a firm sense of my superiority to be so to be so uh, curious, because I think if there was a defining trait, it is of the sense of like profound doubt. About, um,
0: well, you know what? This is—it's—it's is, not—not only is it, you know, because of your Asianness, and there's this expectation of a kind of, you know, retiring and deferential attitude uh, that you know you're, you're not somehow allowed to be. But it's also gendered, mm. really, very, very heavily gendered, right?
1: Uh, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I should also add that I, I have never been attacked in anything remotely like the terms that you have, Jiang. and I don't think it would just roll off my. You know, roll off me like water off a duck's back. I think I would find I it. think we should do an experiment. <laughs> <laughs> It'll probably happen one of these days. <laughs> but no, I. I you say something really outrageous. There, there, is, okay. uh, there is a very, absolutely a gendered aspect to this. I, I first noticed this uh, way back when, when I was running my old website, uh, downway.org, and um, we never had comments at, at the beginning. Uh, you know, it started out as a blog, and blogs typically had comments. And then Then we opened the comments, and they tended to be these very geeky discussions of like, oh, you translated that Chinese word wrong, or actually it wasn't Nanfang Zhou Muo who printed that, it was somebody else. And then when we had our first female staffer, you know, when the the company was a little bit bigger, Alice Liu, who's been on the show, uh, and she started writing regularly, suddenly the tone of the comments changed, and we'd get these really nasty comments, (laughs) Um, so, uh, that's, I, I think, something very important to bear in mind. Uh, the internet breeds uh, misogynist Incel. incels. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think Chinese incels are probably even more frustrated than their American or Western <laughs> counterparts, counterparts yeah. by various things in their life. <laughs> so, perhaps that explains some of the, the, the viciousness.
2: Yeah. Worst
1: gender imbalance in China. I mean,
2: years. there's certainly, I mean, I think that's been commented upon. I think you're exactly right, Jeremy, that the Chinese version is even more intense there than their American counterparts. I mean, um, so many of the attacks, I mean, are about my uh, spinsterhood, um, even though I don't, I, I never, I've never posted anything about my, um, you know, rom- romantic relationships, about, you know, even about my like sexual kind of identity in, 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 in any way. But there's this sense that I'm too old too ugly, too... Just uh, embittered, maybe because I've never gotten attention from. There's the, the, there's a kind of a line of logic that maybe I write what I am because I'm embittered because all men hate me and all men you know find me so kind of in, utterly undesirable and that's why I write these hate pieces against China that i you know that <laughs> 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 there's um there is some psychological kind of like delving into you know why I do um what I do and that I'm really passing on kind of my my misery in I guess the sexual market I'm, I'm political that in some way. So, so there's definitely, um, I think, a very uh, gendered aspect um, to it. And it uh, it actually, that can be very enraging, because talking to apps, abs- uh, completely, you know, um, I think, rational, like enlightened uh, friends of mine, when I talk about the gender politics of China, and the patriarchy of China, I often will get the like, calm down, dude. Like, now you're sounding like a radical. Like, you, you used to be so rational, but like, come on. Like, there's not really sexism in China. Like, you're just, you know, you're, you're, you're.
0: you're... Wait, wait, wait. Who says this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get that yeah, a lot. People, that's, that's
2: like, lot. I, um, and, and then, you know, then, then that really can get my goat. And I will, I will start talking, uh, you know, about the shape of, um, uh, you know, Chinese sexism. And then I guess I, I do become sort of like, I, I do sound as impassioned. Um, and crazy as my, um, friends accuse me of being. But that is a subject actually that, um, because it's it's about larger than me, right? Like, I mean, it's not just about the insults that I'm receiving. It's really about the deformed nature of society that is, you know, that impacts, you know, half its citizens. And that's, I think, much more upsetting to me than whatever foolish tirades I'm, I'm, I'm getting on, um, Twitter.
0: Well, I have to say, you seem to be handling it all remarkably well, better than I certainly would. And I, I, I have to applaud you once again for writing such a courageous piece. Uh, that's something I think neither of us would be able to, to, to muster. Uh, so, I mean... You know, that's more sack than either of these men have right now. So, so congratulations on that.
2: <laughs> you're you're kind, Kaiser. But I think, um, actually, you know, the space that you two have created have allowed, you know, many young, brilliant Chinese women a voice. And I think... You know these the, these changes are incremental, but I think creating these spaces and, and and letting you know voices voices much you know I think more courageous and brilliant than mine to uh, thrive is part of part of the change.
0: Well, thank you very much, and it's just been wonderful to talk to you. We do need to get onto recommendations, uh, and I hope you've got a good one, Jiyang let's first remind listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina if you like what we're doing with Seneca and with the other shows in the Seneca network the best thing you can do to support our work is to subscribe to SubChina's daily newsletter access this thing is truly chock full of great reads on China delivered to your inbox every weekday so sign up and spread the word recommendations Jeremy what do you have for us this week
1: Okay, I'm going to recommend something from sub China. Good. Uh, we have a new series written by the historian James Carter, uh, and it's this week in Chinese history. And um, every one of them has been a, a, a delight uh, to read. Yeah, Jay's um, fantastic. Anecdotes, you know, ranging uh, across the centuries, uh, and all with uh, some relevance.
0: He, it's 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 un- unbelievable. It never feels shoehorned you know. into relevance either. It's just like wow, you know, it's it's there. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. yeah.
1: And uh, uh, we are going to have uh, James or Jay uh, on our podcast yes. at some point in the future, right, Kaiser,
0: about his new book. That's right. no very soon. Uh, Champions Day, his new book, uh, which is about. Uh, shanghai just on the eve in 1941 uh, uh at the the end of things and it's one of those great books about you know uh the old shanghai that is not just populated with anglo characters which is a relief <laughs> it's good Jay, jay's great we we love him and uh really really great to, ha- to have him as uh one of our regular columnists now uh Young, what do you have for us
2: Right. So I uh, have a recommendation that's pretty far away from, um, China and I think, uh, Chinese American, uh, space. Um, it's a book that I'm reading that I have not, um, yet finished. So, um, it's, uh, but it's already, I think, proven to be, um, incredibly fascinating and um, a worthwhile read. It's this book called Negro Land by Margot Jefferson. I don't know if either of you guys um, have heard of it. It's a memoir, and it's about um, a memoir um, written by um, uh, Margot Jefferson, who is herself a writer. I think she's a critic um, or was a critic for The Times, and she talks about um the history of uh african american upper classes in um the us and huh. that yes and that's the, the space that they occupy sort of you know the the educated elite um of uh, black americans and the evolution of how that elite circle um has um come to pass but it's also um a history of dating back to the slave trade to uh the us and i think it's a great it's a great meditation on caste and hierarchy and even and, and an examination of um, you know <laughs> kind of the human um, uh, 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 necessity to kind of you know make sense of the world through a hierarchy which is something I think um, uh, the Chinese are very uh, familiar with and it's also I think a great history about America and about race history in America and um, and I think it's a even though I think the book it's not a new book um, it's it's been out for a while now but I think it's a fitting book um, for the moment and uh, I I particularly want to read to read it because you know Memoirs, um, you know, my, my piece um, is, a, is, a, is a piece, it is very, you know, it's very personal. Um, I've always been suspicious of the genre because it seems awfully narcissistic. Like, who are you? I mean, if you're especially if you're not famous, who are you to write about yourself? You know, do you think you're so important that um, you deserve, you know, 10,000 words or, you know, the space of an entire book? Yes, but yeah, the, yes,
1: that's... I do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, hey, you know, Jiayang, I don't know if you've seen but Isabel Wilkerson has a new book out called yes. cast. Yeah, 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 so
2: cast I'm, I'm- yeah. Um uh I that, that that's on my reading uh list as well. Um but uh but but I you know um i was but but i've been thinking sort of about like memoir and who deserves you know to have their stories told and 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 i think the best memoirs really use the self as an instrument to illuminate the world and um yeah. the voice is only um the, the personal story is really only a tool in telling us about the bigger world that we live in and giving us a sense i mean a, a, a more insightful a uh, sense of you know of reality so sure. um yeah.
0: Excellent recommendation. I will uh, recommend rereading the novel Dune by Frank Herbert as mm. an adult. I think a lot of us read it when we were kids. And I, I can't imagine uh, how much must escape you when you're only, you know, the age of Paul Atreides when he was at the beginning of the book, 15, you know, I, I probably how old I was when I read it. There's a major new motion picture coming out of it. And it looks really great from the trailer. The trailer looks just absolutely amazing. Of course, they always do. I'm I'm going to be heartbroken, probably. But it looks really well cast. It looks really good. But um, I decided to reread Dune. I'm not that far into it again, but already I'm just absolutely struck by uh, how much kind of rich historical, uh, theological, linguistic, uh, environmental knowledge went into the writing of that book. And I think it would have been lost. It was lost on you know the adolescent me reading it. I didn't have the deep appreciation for it. Now I sort of see where everything comes from. Uh, You can sort of you know feel your way through Frank Herbert's head as he's as he's writing this story, and you know where everything comes from. It's it's a it's a different experience altogether right now. So uh, I I imagine there's legions of people rereading it right now (laughs) anyway, in anticipation of the movie in December. But uh, check it out. Thanks, Xiaoyang.
2: Um thank you. It's always such a pleasure talking to you guys and the best part of, you know, being, you know it's a good podcast when you just wish um it didn't have to end and you you know you feel like you could continue talking to these people forever, which is how I feel about you guys. So um really thank you for having me on and uh, um and uh, and for 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 um these conversations that you guys host every week. Uh,
1: you know I, I I think Jiang we're only going to have you on in the future. You say such nice things about us. <laughs> <laughs> I <don't>, I, <laughs> it would
0: really be it a makes you awesome feel so lot fast. better. About,
1: okay, so we'll see you next
0: week then. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it's great to talk to you as always. So uh, we'll see you soon, Jiang, and uh, congrats once again. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Gua and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News. And make sure to check out our other podcasts in the Seneca Network. Thank you for listening. We will see you next week. Take care.